This last year has been one of the most challenging of my life, but it's also been one of the best years of my life. And as some of you know, my wife and I, we spent the last number of years serving as missionaries in Brazil. And early this year, plans began to change, and we saw the Lord quickly closing some doors that we thought would remain open for a very long time to come. And we spent a lot of this year asking questions of purpose, questions of, should we still serve in Brazil? Should we continue to even be missionaries? I remember very distinctly in February this year at Moody's Founders Week, sitting in the uh, auditorium listening to a speaker and thinking about these questions, and I remember thinking to myself, what will people think of me? if I stop being a missionary. And no sooner had I thought that than was I very embarrassed at that thought. But these questions of, of purpose and meaning, we all ask them. And often, not in our better moments, we seek out answers that we know won't work. How many of us so often think that maybe with this next purchase, maybe just a little bit, of contentment will linger. How many of us hope that with a little bit more work, maybe a little bit more elbow grease, we'll be more successful than the person next to us? Or how many of us hope and pin our happiness on our relationships and the relationships with people around us? So as I was contemplating purpose this week, I did what any responsible researcher would do, and I googled purpose. So here's a couple of the uh, top hits that I found. Justin Bieber has uh, been contemplating purpose and wrote a song entitled Purpose recently, and one of the lines in his song goes like this. He writes, you're not hard to reach, and you've blessed me with the greatest gift that I've ever known. You give me purpose. Yeah. You've given me purpose. Well, I applaud Justin Bieber for contemplating purpose. But as I read that, I feel very sad for him. What a moving target to define yourself by your acceptance by those around you. I also found another top hit was psychologytoday.com. And Dr. Scott Allison writes that your purpose is to live the life of a hero. He explains that there's four key points to this. The first is that you go on a journey. I think he'd been reading The Lord of the Rings. Secondly, he writes, you grow from adversity. Third, you assemble a team or maybe a fellowship of allies. And fourth, you give back to society. And what I thought was interesting about both of these answers, and there were some other ones that I looked at that weren't worth mentioning, uh, is that each of these, these are moving targets. These are things that you will never complete. So the good news is, for real, that as we turn to Scripture and look at Genesis chapter 2, we see that God has endowed his creation with purpose, and that each of us has God-given purpose. So let's turn to the end of Genesis chapter 1. 
We're going to spend our time mostly in chapter 2, but please turn to Genesis chapter 1. We'll start in verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us, to reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, the livestock, all the wild animals on the ground, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given you every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all that he had made and saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came marking the sixth day. Now there's a lot going on here, and Pastor Chris started last week focusing in on the image of God. But I want to draw your attention to verse 28, where it says that God blessed them. Now as we continue this series in Genesis, we're going to see that God's blessing is a major theme of Genesis and even all of the rest of Scripture. God's blessing of humanity stands head and shoulders above the rest. He commissions Adam and Eve, mankind, to be fruitful and multiply. And what's going to be interesting throughout the rest of our time in Genesis is we're going to see how God is going to bless the world through humanity's fruitfulness and multiplicity. And many of the problems that need to be overcome in Genesis have to do with barrenness, or struggling to be fruitful and multiply. What's more is that God entrusts man to be his representatives on earth, to govern over the created order, and to reign. We know that God has set up, as Jared mentioned two weeks ago, the entire universe, days one, two, three, setting the form, days four, five, and six, filling those forms. But God reigns in heaven above, and he, in his goodness, has decided that mankind will reign as his representative on earth. And what's really interesting is that in ancient Near Eastern culture, we have other creation mythologies that we call them. And in most of them, the the deity or the God who is ruling, his purpose for humanity is that they will basically be enslaved to him that they will serve their God, that they will offer up food and gather, that they will worship him through cultic acts of of worshiping whatever this God might be. And here we see that Israel's God, the true God of Scripture, turns that on his head. He doesn't instill mankind to be his slaves, to 
give him something that he lacks. Rather, he has given them everything they need. Jared mentioned that God created over the overflow of his goodness and love that he shared within the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here, pay careful attention to God's provision for his creation. Let's continue at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all of his work of creation. We see here God is enthroned in heaven above. We see that he has completed his task of ordering the universe. And then we transition in verse 4. It writes, This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Now that first phrase, this is the account of, this occurs a lot in Genesis. Sometimes it's translated, these are the generations of, and it's one of the key structural features of Genesis. But as we get into the rest of chapter 2 this morning, basically what we're doing is, in Genesis 1, we have the creation, the first week of creation of everything. And in Genesis 2, the focal point shifts, and it focuses in exactly on day 6, as God created the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. So it's not exactly retelling what's already happened, but it is this shift in focus. And there's a much more intimate focus on the creator and his creation. Continuing in verse 4, When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. If you're paying close attention, the name for God has shifted in verse 4. It says, the Lord God. And this is kind of a combination name for God. In Genesis chapter 1, we just have the word God, which is the general word for God that's used in Scripture. It's used in Genesis 1 as God is the creator. But the Lord God, and what's usually translated the Lord in your Bible, is God's personal covenant name that he revealed to Israel. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, as Moses encountered God in the burning bush, and God's telling him to go to Egypt to liberate his people, and Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. Here in Genesis 2, we have this combination name, the Lord God, reinforcing this idea that the creator of the heavens and earth is the self-same covenant God who desired to dwell amongst his people in Israel. That's going to be important later and we're going to come back to that. He made the heavens and the earth. Neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. This is a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to come in Genesis 3. These are wild plants that are an 
inedible plants, probably alluding to the thorns and thistles which will plague Adam. The grains that are not yet growing, these are the the plants that Adam will need to cultivate through the sweat of his brow. There's not yet rain, and we know the story in Genesis that rain is going to come in a heavy way in a few chapters. And people were not on the land to cultivate it. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered the land. We don't know if these were mists, underwater rivers, or what exactly they were, but the point of it is this. God, in his abundance, has graciously provided for his creation. He has given them everything that they need. Then in verse 7, Then the Lord God, the covenant creator, formed the man from the dust of the ground. Now there's a Hebrew word play here, because the word for man, which is basically... Adam sounds just like the word for dust. One commentator mentioned that Adam's relationship with dust, it is his cradle, it is his future which he will cultivate and ultimately will be his grave because to the dust he will return. We see here that God is this artisan. He is purposefully crafting the pinnacle of his creation And then setting it apart further still, he intimately in this face-to-face action bequeaths life through his breath to the man. And the man becomes a living living being. Verse 8, Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's placement, as we're going to see this morning, God's placement of humanity is intimately connected with his purpose for us. We're going to come back to how Eden is in the east. Pay special attention in verse 9 here where it says that the Lord God made all sorts of trees to grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. This exact wording we're going to encounter in a couple weeks in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve is contemplating eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She sees that the tree is beautiful and that it has produced delicious fruit. The tree of life stands there in the center of the garden. In the middle of Adam and Eve's world stood two trees, one that represented life and the other one which represented represented the law of God and his word. We're going to come back to that at the end of this chapter. The narrative here in chapter 2 takes a little bit of a hiatus and there's a break-off where it focuses on these rivers starting in verse 10. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden, and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch is called the Gaihan, which flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Ashur, The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. 
Now, I can't tell you or even begin to describe how much energy, effort, and ink have been spilled on these four rivers trying to deduce Eden's location. And I'm going to give you the really brief synopsis, okay? Basically, there are two current existing rivers in the Middle East that have the two of these names, the Tigris and the Euphrates. For all of, all of these different scholars and geologists' work to figure out how they could all come from one point, we can't make sense of it. And exactly how they reached to where they reached, we don't exactly know. The point is not to try to figure out where Eden was located. Because we know from reading Genesis 3 that man is going to be exiled from this garden of God. The point is that Eden is this special place where God is dwelling amongst his creation. And these rivers, these four rivers which flow outward from Eden, carry life-giving blessing to the rest of God's creation. Verse 15. The Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. We think of Adam as an agricultural worker, diligently farming the land and reaping an absolutely plentiful harvest from his work. And I believe that that is true, but there is more going on in these words to tend and to watch over the garden. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 16, But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Pastor Chris will get into more of what the tree of knowledge and good and of tree of knowledge of good and evil means in a couple weeks as we get into Genesis chapter 3. But from reading the context of Genesis, there's a couple things that we can say with certainty about it. First of all, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is prohibited for mankind. Secondly, it does not provide them with anything that they need. As I already mentioned, God had given them, caused all sorts of trees to grow up from the ground that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. Adam and Eve cannot use, it's almost in preventative measure here in chapter 2, Adam and Eve can't say, we needed to eat the fruit of this tree because we were hungry, or that we lacked something because God's provision for them was complete, not lacking anything. The last thing that we know for sure about the tree of knowledge of good and evil is that in one sense, and in a tragic sense, it eating of it did make Adam and Eve more like God. But there is a tragic and wicked twist to that. Again, we'll see that in the coming weeks. So, I've alluded to a couple different things here that we're going to come back to. And what I believe is going on here, and many other scholars believe this, is that Eden was a sacred place and that Adam was given a sacred purpose. I believe that Eden was very much a temple garden sanctuary. And I'm going to highlight a few things from this passage which I believe support that idea. The first one is that the, it is a garden. And as if you'll recall in the Old Testament, once the temple is set up that Solomon builds, if you remember what decorated the inside of the temple, 
it was decorated as though it were a garden. Carved into the cedar wood, which was then overlaid with gold, were images of trees, of cherubim angels, images of pomegranates and opening flowers. In addition to that, we see that Eden was in the east, which is the same direction which the tabernacle faced, and you guessed it, which the temple in Jerusalem faced. Not only that, we encounter in this passage an emphasis on gold, of exceptionally pure gold. And gold is what overlaid nearly all the furnishings of the temple. And most especially, gold overlaid the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence on earth was especially dwelling amongst his people. In addition to gold, we see this aromatic resin, sometimes translated as bdellium, and onyx stone. Bdellium, or aromatic resin, in Numbers chapter 11, is actually the same substance to which manna is likened. When God provides for the Israelites wandering in the desert, he gives them graciously food to eat, providing for their needs. More than that, the law of God played a central role in the worship of God, how he ordained it in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple. If you'll remember that the law of God was deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. And as the Israelites wandered throughout the desert, in the center of their camp, they had their tabernacle. And then each of the 12 tribes camped and circled around it so that the very center of Israelite life was directed towards God and his law, how he had instructed his people to live well in his world. The temple was furnished with lampstands, having seven arms or branches reaching forward, which likely called to mind these images of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We also see in Scripture that in Ezekiel's temple, and ultimately in the end of Revelation, which we'll look at later this morning, there are rivers flowing out just as there are rivers flowing out of Eden. Lastly, we see in Genesis chapter 3 that after Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, the Lord places a cherubim angel with a flaming sword to guard the entrance to Eden. And if you'll recall, the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim fashioned on top of it with their wings spread out over top of it, symbolically guarding the holiness of God. Whether or not Eden was exactly a temple or whether or not Eden was basically a prototype of the temple, we could debate. But the point is, it is a sacred place that God set up to dwell amongst his people. Adam also was given a sacred purpose. Adam was commissioned to represent his creator, to reign over the earth. Adam is commissioned to be fruitful and multiply. And as I mentioned, we're going to see how God's blessing flows through that multiplicity in the coming weeks. Adam is also commissioned in verse 15 to tend the garden and watch over it. Now these words can be translated as several different things. And one that's very, very interesting is that <clears throat> they're often translated as to serve and guard. One Old Testament scholar wrote this. 
He writes, when these two words, to tend and watch over the garden, or to serve and guard the garden, when these two words occur together, later in the Old Testament, without exception, they refer to the Israelites serving and guarding or obeying God's word, or more often than that, to priests who serve God in his temple and guard the temple from unclean things. This is a task which we know Adam will ultimately fail in. Like Adam, the priests stood as mediators between God and man. Onyx stone, which we also see here in Genesis chapter 2, is very significant. We read in the, in, near the end of Exodus in chapter 28 that it is an onyx stone that the Israelites engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And those were fashioned into the, guard, the, um, the robes of the high priest as he would go and make sacrifices on behalf of God's people. Adam's sacred purpose was intimately tied into his placement. That he lived worked and tended the garden where God's presence was specially manifested on earth. Now the context of Genesis is particularly important for this because if you'll remember, Genesis was most likely written by Moses. After the Israelites had left Egypt, after they had been delivered from the bondage and slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, Moses wrote, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Genesis chapter 2 is alluding to many of these important things that God is going to ask Israel to set up a sacred place, the tabernacle, where he is going to dwell in the midst of his people. And God has entrusted the Israelites with a sacred purpose. It is God's plan that Israel would be a kingdom of priests, who would be lights in the darkness, shining, glimmering, demonstrating the difference of God's people from the nations around them. Remember, God chose Israel not because they were the greatest or the strongest or the mightiest or the most courageous. He chose them because they were the least, the most helpless. Because that through them, the nations would know that the Lord is God. Their very covenant creator. One day, another man would come. Not to a lush and lavish garden like Adam, but to filth, brokenness, and the rottenness of sin. And like Adam, this other man who would come would seal the destiny for humanity by a tree. The very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, hung on a tree in your place and in mine. As he hung on that tree, as his body was torn and broken in our place, Jesus 
nullified the very institution of the temple. We read in the Gospels that at his death, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. The place where man meets with God is no longer the temple. Jesus himself had a sacred purpose to restore fallen humanity to a right relationship with God. Jesus himself was the mediator between God and man as our great high priest. And he offered the most costly offering. Not of the order of Aaron, Scripture tells us, but of the order of Melchizedek. As the son of righteousness, Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice. And in doing so, he has restored for us the ability to be in God's presence and restored to a right relationship with him. And for us, this is incredibly important because if you are a follower of Jesus by placing your faith in him, you have become a sacred place and God himself has given you sacred purpose. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. And your sacred purpose is not something that someone else can take from you, not something that someone else determines for you. Your sacred purpose is defined by being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has given you purpose. And it is to delight in what the Lord has done for you. There's a few ways that we can delight in what the Lord has done for us. The first is to know who the Lord is and what he has done. We're going to see in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve failed to know who the Lord was. And one thing that's very interesting about the name, the Lord God, that's used in Genesis chapter 2, is that in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, as Eve is contemplating eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the question is, did God really say? The, what's questioned is not, did the Lord God, the personal covenant-related God to his people, did he say this? God's very covenant relationship with his people is under attack in Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve ultimately failed to know who God was by doubting his goodness, by failing to delight in what the Lord had done for them. A second way that we do this is by loving the Lord and loving his word. As Adam and Eve considered and contemplated the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil, they doubt God's goodness. And how quick are we to do the same? To think that the law of the Lord is burdensome and it not, does not have our best interests at heart. How many of us can pray with the psalmists and say, Lord, I love your law. I fear that if we cannot do that, we do not understand the goodness of God. We delight in what the Lord has done for us by displaying God's goodness in us. Each one of you who have placed your faith in Christ, you have something to say. 
Because God has done a work in your life. It's often that the church is criticized as being full of hypocrites. And to a certain extent, that can be true. That depends on who we're talking about. But one thing I know for sure is that the church is full of sinners. And you and I are welcome in this place because we share a common problem. And it is our sinfulness. We would all be a lot better if we would admit our brokenness and focus on what the Lord has done for us. It's not that we're the hero of our own stories every single time, but it is that God is doing a wonderful thing in us, that we were broken and in Christ we are restored. The last way that I think we can particularly delight in what the Lord has done for us is to disseminate the blessings and spread out the blessings of the goodness of God. We can love those who are unlovable because we ourselves were loved when we were unlovable. We can forgive people in our lives who don't even ask us to forgive them because we were graciously forgiven and did not deserve it. Our master and our Lord was trampled upon. He was taken advantage of. He was used. He was betrayed. Why should we think it would be any different for us? You, if you have faith in Christ, are a sacred place. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you have sacred purpose, which is to delight in the Lord and what he has done for you. And if you're here this morning and your faith has not been placed in Jesus, you are not a sacred place. You are not a temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, you are a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit. You are a shrine to other gods, to the God of money, to the God of success, to the God of achievement or knowledge. And you are running out of time. Those of us who do have faith in Christ, we have great hope. Please turn with me to the end of Revelation chapter 21. Keep Genesis chapter 2 in your mind as we read portions of, Genesis, of Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation chapter 21, we're going to start at verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look! God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these are gone forever forever. 
And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all of these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Skip over to verse 22 of chapter 21. John continues, I saw no temple in this city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city. And the the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Continuing in chapter 22, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. And His name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, No need for lamps for the sun. For the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. This is our hope. We know how the story ends. And as temples of the Holy Spirit, as you go about your week, delight in what the Lord has done for you. And if you're taken advantage of, if people don't ask you for forgiveness, if people are unlovable, forgive them because you've been forgiven. And display the goodness of God and what he has done for you.